Peace is something that we value highly, but oftentimes, until we've lost it, um, we don't understand just how valuable it is. And uh, we live in a time right now where we can be endlessly distracted with all sorts of things. And, uh, but when we're by ourselves, and there's no distraction, and there's nothing to watch, no one to talk to, uh, no kid to take care of, no, uh, no duty or job to fulfill at that moment. And it's just us in the quietness of our own home and our own hearts. Uh, we recognize whether or not we have peace. And, uh, and oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes it's elusive. And that's why we look for that thing to distract us. Anyone else? Does anybody else ever do that? Okay. Um, the reason why we do that, among other things, is because we lack peace, and we, we don't like that. We want to fix it. We want to fix it now. We want it fixed yesterday. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting in a, a car repair shop probably eight or ten years ago and watching the news. It was the morning news. I was getting an oil change or something in my car, and and in the, the morning show that, I was, that was on the TV, I wasn't really watching it, but, but something caught my attention. And it, it said how many tens of millions suffer from anxiety disorder in America. Tens of millions. And this was eight or ten years ago. Do you suspect it's gotten better? Probably not. Recently, I heard a number that was staggering to me. Some 30 million children I'm not sure if that's, I assume that's under 18. Struggle, not that they're diagnosed with this or on, on medication necessarily, but struggle with some sort of anxiety disorder. This is a serious problem. It's always been a problem. One of the reasons that the Bible tells us to not fear and not be anxious or not worry so many times is because it's a besetting temptation for mankind, not just 21st century Americans, but for people. And so today I want to address, and I, this is something that's been in my heart for a bit, so we're going to take a hiatus from 1 Timothy for a week. And um, I want to address how we can live in peace, have peace, fight for peace in a world that has gone absolutely mad. And, you know, read, kind of apologize to the kids that you're going to be in here. You know what? It's good you're here because you need to hear this too. Um, how do we fight for peace and joy, because they're connected. I can't remember, Reed quoted somebody a while back who said, um, uh, who said peace is joy at rest or something, and joy is peace dancing. So they're interconnected, joy and peace. I don't know if it's a Puritan or something. Kind of sounds like something they might say. How do we fight for peace and joy in a world that is increasingly insane. In times of revolution, in the times of revolution we're living through, and I do think it's a time of revolution, certainly sexual revolution and cultural revolution and so forth, how do we have peace? And even beyond that, how do we become instruments through which peace actually spreads to others? We all probably know someone, maybe multiple people, maybe it's us sometimes. We all have been this person. All right, I'll just say it this way. We've all been this person at, at some time. 
when they enter the room, if there was peace, when they come, it's not there anymore. We've been that person, right? We carry our troubles, our anxieties, our, everywhere we go, we've done that. We love the truth from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And I think you put in timidity, worry, anxiety there. God has not given us that spirit, but one of power and love and a sound mind or self-control. We love the truth that we're actually children of God. We've been given the spirit, not of fear, but of adoption by whom we cry Abba, Father. We love singing about peace and the peace that passes all understanding. We love talking about this. We love thinking, oh, I I want this peace. And yet sometimes, oftentimes, it's very elusive to us. Real peace. Over and over and over again, we're commanded in the Bible to not fear, to not fret. Psalm 37, I think, verse 1 says, do not fret. How do we fight against this besetting temptation that often overtakes us so that we can be men and women who experience the peace of God so that we can be men and women and kids who experience the God of peace in our lives? Well, that's, that's precisely what we have in our text this morning. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He planted this church in somewhere around A.D. 50-51. This is a church that he loved. He, he knew these people, at least the people that he met while he was there. He knew them well. He loved them. He cared for them. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, and he wrote many of them, um, to, to different churches, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, and so forth. This is a letter where there's almost no word of correction or word of rebuke or, or, or corrective tone in this letter. This is a church that he was encouraged by. And so what he says in these verses is not meant to be taken. It's not a rebuke to them. It's not a correction to them. You know, oftentimes when we feel beat down by life and circumstances and the world, the last thing we need is to be scolded by somebody. Doggone it! Stop doing that! Right? Paul is not doing that here. Paul is speaking like a father to children he loves and cares about, and he's aware that the people in Philippi, like the people in Ephesus and the people in Rome and the people in Ankeny in the 21st century, that we are given to fear and anxiety. And so he has a word for them, a loving command to them. Do not be anxious. Paul is writing out of a deep, warm affection for these saints. The command is actually kind of daunting when you think about it. Here's what he says. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. You might be thinking, yeah, well, he doesn't know what I'm going through, what's going on in my life. 
Yeah, well, Paul went through hard things, right? Paul went through significantly difficult things. He says, do not be anxious about anything. To be anxious is to be troubled with cares, to be troubled with concerns, to worry, to have your heart in a fearful state. Maybe some of you walked into church today anxious because you went to bed last night anxious because you lived most of yesterday anxious because you lived a lot of last week anxious. Paul is saying that all the things that cause you worry, your health, life. Have you noticed the last 20 months with the constant drumbeat about COVID, how fearful people are to lose their lives? Whatever causes you to worry, your financial state, Things going on in your finances, your business that you run, or your job. Many people are concerned about their jobs. They weren't two weeks ago, but they are now. Your children, your friends, your family, your nation. All these things that you might be worried about or might find yourself tempted to be worried about, Paul says, don't be anxious about any of those things. None of them. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we combat this temptation to be anxious, to be loaded down with troubles and fears? And we all know that it damages us, don't we? I mean, it damages us even physically, but we know that it does something to our souls. It paralyzes growth in Christ to be anxious all the time. It does. How do we do this? Paul wisely tells us three things in this passage. And I think this can... This has been deeply helpful to me, and I think it can be to you too. Here's what he does. First, he reminds us of a great reality. Second, Paul gives three really, really practical commands. And third, Paul points to a great promise. He reminds of a great reality. He gives practical commands. He points to a great promise. First, Paul reminds us in this passage of a great, often overlooked reality. Before Paul gives the command, don't be anxious about anything, he does something. And we, I remember oh, four or five years ago, I was listening to a message by a guy named David Powlison, and he pointed this out. I've never, ever, I mean, I'd read over the verse many times, but I'd never seen the connection. Right? Many of you maybe have memorized Philippians 6. Be anxious for nothing or don't be anxious about anything. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Regard your hearts and minds in Christ. But what's, what does Paul say right before that? David, David Pallison said for anxious people, this is everything. The Lord 
is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. The nearness of the Lord is a great gift, the great gift to anxious people. Our worries and cares usually imply that we need someone, someone who's wise, someone who's strong, someone who's gracious, someone to protect us, someone to come and fix things, someone to help us. And only those who are in Christ know and have that someone. God being near to his people has always been, it's always been a great blessing. Old Testament, New Testament, it's always been a great blessing. In fact, Moses said that this was the most distinguishing blessing God could give to his people, that he would be with them. In Exodus 33, Moses said, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, so that we're distinguished, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What distinguishes Christians from all the other people on the face of the earth. One way to describe it, I mean, we're in Christ, we're saved through his blood. Another way to describe it is we are a people that God dwells with and in the midst of. What a gift. God was always near to his people. In the Old Testament, you read through the Psalms, these longings of the psalmist to be near to God and he was near to them but the blessing of God's nearness is infinitely better now that Christ has come the blessing of God's nearness is infinitely better now that the Lord Jesus Christ has come the new covenant which has better promises all of which have been purchased for us by a better mediator, Jesus Christ. He's better than Moses. For those who are in Christ, listen to what Jesus says to you. If you're in Christ, here's what he says. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, he doesn't just say, behold, I'm with you. There's another word in there. He says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is there ever a time you could ever imagine when Christ is not with you? If he's with you always to the very end of the age in every hardship and every difficulty as we follow him and walk with him, is there ever a time in the darkest valley, in the deepest difficulty, in the greatest anguish, that Christ is not with you. For the Christian, those words of Christ are true, period, whether you feel a thing or not. Christ is with you. Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, we've been praying for them, 
some of them in hiding, some of them already taken into custody, I'm, I'm sure. Some of them just know that that knock is going to come on the door. Christ is with them. Christ is with them. And you, in your anguish, in your anxiety, or in the thing that is, you're facing that is causing you to be tempted to descend into the abyss of fear and anxiety, Christ is with you. Hebrews chapter 13 puts it this way. He himself said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What a gift. This gift, of course, is realized through the indwelling spirit. John 16, 7, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples who heard what he said, and got anxious because they didn't understand, right? He said, I'm going to leave soon, but it's actually to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I will not send the helper to you, but I'm going to go, and the helper is going to be sent to you, and it's better for you. So it's amazing. It's not just that God is with us like You know, on the other side of the room, he's with us. We can kind of look over and he can wink at us and we know everything's okay. He's like with us, with us, with us, in us. Through his spirit. Now you might think, yeah, I know, but I've got some pretty big problems. I mean, I know that he's with me, right? This is like Sunday school stuff. You learned this when you were six. He's always with me. But I got some big problems. I'm freaked out about this. I don't... Or maybe you think, yeah, but don't you see what's going on in the world or America or the schools? Right? And that's why Paul reminds us who is at hand. It's the Lord that's at hand. You know, Alyssa shared earlier, I mean, stupendous reality that Jesus says you're my friends, but we must never forget who's the one that says that. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of everything. I'm teaching science to some kids um, on Tuesdays, and we went through the observable universe, and then what's beyond that is, you know, breathtaking. I mean, the billions of stars and the two trillion galaxies that scientists think there are, Hebrews 1 says Jesus Christ upholds them all every moment of every day by the word of his power. And he's the one that's with us. We don't want a domesticated, emasculated Jesus. We want the real Jesus. The one who is Lord. And he's at hand. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. Jesus is the owner and ruler and Lord of everyone and everything. Jesus Christ, triumphant over the grave, with all authority, in heaven 
and on earth. That's what he claimed for himself, right? After he rose from the dead, Jesus said, all authority in heaven. And we often think, yeah, I know that. But then he said, and on earth belongs to me. And he's with us. This is a great reality. This is the great reality that we need to set our minds and affections on by faith. Paul, at the end of his life, he's going to have his head chopped off. He knows it. He stands trial the first time and he says, no one stood with me. Everyone deserted me. And then he said this, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. He's with us. The Lord is at hand. You, 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 you stack up those things. I mean, not that I want you to focus on your, the things that, are, that might cause anxiety, but you just stack up those things and then compare it to the one who upholds the universe. And he's with you. The second thing Paul does, he, he, points, he reminds us of a great reality. The Lord is at hand. Then he gives three very practical commands to us. The overarching command, of course, is do not be anxious about anything. Instead, Paul says, do three things. Okay? Instead of being anxious, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, do these three things. And here's what he says. He says, pray. Think and act. Pray, think, and act. First, Paul says pray. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, pray. Or he says, with prayer. Prayer. The word prayer means to address God, to talk to God. How often do we just want to talk about our difficulties with others? Right? We just want to mull over it. We want to, well, how often do we want to just talk about it to ourselves over and over again? And then... If we can find someone to, to come alongside us so that we can tell them all of our troubles too, we will do that and we sometimes can do that endlessly. And Paul says, I mean, what, what does that do? That, that amps up anxiety. Paul says, how about you take it to someone who can do something? How about you pray? Address it to God. Tell God. Bring your needs to God. Tell him about what is causing you such anxiety and concern. Talk to God about it. So he says with prayer, and then he also says with supplication, which is a little different word. In Greek, prayer is to address God, is to come to God. It's connected. um, the, The word that's translated worship and the word that's translated prayer, they're from the same word grouping. So we address God. We come to God. Supplication means to bring our need, our desperation, our privation, our deprivation to God. And how many know God loves to hear the cry of the desperate, of the destitute? 
of the anxious. Psalm 102:17 says God regards the prayer of the destitute and do, excuse me God regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. He regards it, he does not despise it. Your needs are not too big for God, and he knows all your needs. We sang it earlier. He knows everything. It's part of, part of what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. He knows all of your needs, but he wants you to come to him. He wants you to come like a child to a great, wonderful, gracious, strong father. Those of you that have kids at home now or, that, or you have in the past, you all know what it's like to have that little bugger come up and keep pulling on your jeans and say, Daddy, Daddy, you know, or Dad, 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 I need help, I need help, I need help. And what is your inclination as a father? Of course it's to help. It's to come to their aid. We have six kids, and so 21 down to one and a half. So we've had a rolling group of kids that you know come into our room in the middle of the night because they're scared or something and you know there are times I don't want to get up with them I've, there have been times I've not wanted to get up with them but what do you do as a parent you come to the help and aid of your kids so we pray we supplicate we come with prayer and supplication then it says with thanksgiving our prayers should not just be desperate cries for help but also full of gratitude, thanksgiving, not just telling God what we want from him, but pouring out our thanks for his great kindness. And I find this, when I do this, it's so helpful because it it actually helps to remind me of who God is. Father, thank you that you're a good father. Thank you that you will withhold no good thing from those who fear you. Father, thank you that you gave your son for us. How will you not also give us all things in him? We remind ourselves, we thank him for his goodness, his grace, for all that he has done and for all that he promises to do. We pray with thanksgiving. And then let your requests be made known to God. So pray, prayer with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Tell him what is burdening you. Tell him. Psalm 62, 8 says, pour out your heart before him. The first thing we must do, rather than be anxious, is pray. We had someone pop in to prayer a couple of weeks ago on Thursday afternoon. And seemed like he was anxious about something. Came in and brought, he, brought, he, he brought it to the Lord. But you know what? He also brought it to brothers and sisters who would pray with him and for him and about what was burdening his heart. The old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus reminds us in such simple yet profound words, oh, what peace we often forfeit. You guys know how it goes? Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything 
to God in prayer. So we need to pray. Don't be anxious about anything. Rather pray. And then Paul says this, don't just pray, but also think. Set your mind in a certain direction. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, listen, think about these things. The command is to set your mind on certain things. To dwell on or to think about certain things and not think about other things. So this means turning away from from listening to the things that are causing or tempt anxiety and fear. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is described first as the man who does not listen to certain things. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he shuts certain things out. So what are we to set our minds on? Paul starts with whatever's true. We're to think about what is true. We want our minds informed by truth. If we're going to fight against anxiety, the anxiety, the, the temptation to be unsettled and anxious and worried and fearful, we need to fix our minds on what is true. It's not coincidental that Paul starts here. Think about what's true. Psalm 119, 160 says the sum total of your word is truth. So we need to fix our mind on what God says and what God says is true. Besides, what comes next? We're we're to fix our mind on what is true, but also what is honorable and lovely and of good report and so forth. But we have to start with what's true. Because what God says is honorable is honorable. Not what you and I decide. What God says is lovely is what's truly lovely. Not what you and I say is lovely. And our own fallen thinking. What God says is just is truly just. I don't know if you've noticed, but the word justice and injustice have been, has been completely redefined in our culture. We need to go to what God says is true. And we want to think about these things. God's standard of truth. But what we do see after Paul says whatever's true, what we see after that I think is a kind of progression. After what is true, Paul says, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think, think about these things. This passage, now listen, this is so important. Kids, listen up. This passage, sorry, I'm not trying to pick on you, but everyone, this passage is saying it assumes we can set our minds on certain things 
and stop setting them on other things. We live in a world right now where everyone emotes. Everyone's emotions are running amok. And what I feel is true and the final authority. And God's word over and over again and here tells us to use our minds. To not live by every parent, every wise parent has told their kids you cannot live by your feelings. And yet, that is being exalted in our society as the apex. What you feel is ultimate reality. It's garbage. We're to set our minds on what is true and honorable and so forth. Paul says, you want peace? Use your brain. That's what he's saying. Think about certain things. Stop thinking about other things. I mean, I imagine we could all think back to a time, maybe this last week, when we were worked up about something and you could trace it back to earlier in the day or 10 minutes before or the night before to what you were dwelling on, what you were thinking about. Think about what's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, he's talking to Christians, seek the things that are above. And then he tells us how to seek the things above. He says, set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, instead of being anxious, we need to pray and we need to think and then we need to act. Verse 9, Paul says, what, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. After we have prayed to the mighty and sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and filled our mind with his truth and what is honorable and so forth, we are to act. Paul says, imitate, this is essentially what Paul's saying, imitate what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Imitate them. Do them. Christians are to be people of action. Active in the world. Active in the home, active in the neighborhood, active at work. We're to be men and women and children who do things in the real world. We're not just, not just to address God privately in prayer and then think God's thoughts privately in our minds, but we're also to act and practice and live these things out in public right? We're to be, we're to live under the lordship of Christ in every area of life, both private and public. Daniel 11.32 says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
We are to pray, we are to think, we are to act, rather than be filled with anxiety. The great reality of God with us, these three practical commands, and then finally, a great promise, and it is a great promise. Two phrases are used in this text that I think are communicating basically the same thing. Verse 7 says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 9 says this, And the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God and the God of peace. When the peace of God comes, when God grants us his peace, this peace that's being described here, that surpasses all understanding, it's because of this. It's because this, the God of peace has stepped in and said, Anxiety, get out of here. Be gone. Fear, go. Worry, flee. Remember the story in Mark chapter 4? Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. They're getting, going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, and Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, got tired because he was a human too, and he went to take a nap in the stern of the boat. And a great windstorm, which was not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee because it's down, surrounded by these large hills, blew in upon them, this tempest wind, tempestual wind, and the winds caused the waves to crash over the side of the boat. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are not. They're freaked out. They go and wake Jesus up. They say, Master, don't you care? We're dying. They said, they literally, they said we're perishing. Jesus rubbed his eyes, got up, and said, Peace be still. And instantly, it was, the Sea of Galilee was like a sea of glass. The wind stopped, the wave stopped instantly. He's the God of peace who gives his peace. When he gives us his peace, it's not like he's sprinkling something down upon us. He's coming to us in a powerful, mighty way. And he steps in and says, anxiety, go. I find it interesting that the answer to prayer here in Philippians 4 is not the removal of the things that worry us. It's not taking those things away or, or solving the, pro the problem instantly. Certainly God can do that, and he often does. But Paul is focused on something else. The answer is peace. The answer is something that we need more than all of our problems solved the way that we think they ought to be solved. What we need more is a revelation that God is with us. He's the God of peace and have his peace guard our hearts and minds. And that's what Paul says peace does, the peace of God. It says that it does something. It guards. The word guard indicates a military, like a military guard to protect from hostile invasion. 
this peace that God gives us called the peace of God from the God of peace, it guards our hearts and our minds. Not just our hearts, not just our minds, but our hearts and minds. Is there a difference? Well, there is. It'll guard our hearts. The heart is the command and control center of, of our spiritual life. When the heart is constantly weighed down by fear and anxiety, it paralyzes us. It stunts our growth. It paralyzes sanctification and Christ-likeness, which is why Proverbs 4.23, memorize this if you haven't, it says this, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Or from it flow the springs of life. From your heart flow all the springs of life. And so when the God of peace guards our heart, it guards the, command, the control center for our entire lives. And it also will guard your minds. Now someone might look at what has been said today and and I said, you know, God is with us. And then there's three things you need to do to fight against anxiety. And you might think, is this, is this a kind of earning God's peace or the gift of God's peace? If you pray enough, if you think hard enough, if you do what pleases him, then he will give you peace. But if you don't, then it's just outside of your reach and he's just holding it up here and you've got to do more and more to get up to where that peace is that you might access it. It's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. It's not like we're doing our part and God is doing his part in the sense of workload. Rather, think of it like this. Think of the anxious person as a person who is destitute and weary and wandering in a desert. And he hears that just over that hill, there is this oasis with endless water that you can drink from. What's he going to do? He's going to run with whatever strength he has left to that oasis in order to drink his fill and be satisfied. That's what God is inviting us to today. The God of peace is near. He's with us. He's here. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, Pray to this gracious Lord. Pour out your heart to him. And open up his book. You know what? I, when's the last time? And don't raise your hand. It's not condemning, but just, just ask yourself, when's the last time you've opened the book? How much time do you spend in the book versus Facebook or YouTube or television or Twitter or the combination of everything. Hear what he has to say. His truth to triumph over all the lies and deception that is rampant and being foisted upon us every day. And then do what's right. Do what you know is right. Maybe, maybe the anxiety you are tempted to fall into is because you know that there's something you need to do in that situation. 
First pray, first hear what God has to say about it, but then practice, do something. Amen? Brothers and sisters, the world is on fire. We all see it. We all know it. We, all, we, we experience it. May we be men and women who know, walk in, and spread the peace of God where we go. Being men and women of peace, this peace of, doesn't mean that we're wimps or pushovers or get walked all over. There's a time to act. We're to act. We're to be men and women who act, of action. But we are to act from a place of peace rather than from a place of panic. In an anxious, confused, fretful, angry, fearful world, may we seek to represent the God of peace well. Jesus said this. This is one of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who know peace with God and know the peace that surpasses all understanding, and then they go and they make peace. They spread it. They shall be called sons of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this peace that truly does surpass all understanding. We have, we've experienced it. I'm, I have no doubt we could go around and hear story after story and hear of a daunting, um, mountainous problem that we faced that we were concerned about, worried about, and amazingly, supernaturally, miraculously, you granted us peace in the midst of it. We thank you for this, Lord, and I pray that we would be men and women and children who fight for peace and fight against anxiety so that we can be peacemakers wherever we go, we, so that we can represent you well and glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said... Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to speak this rich blessing over you, and I pray, I want you to receive this, okay? Listen to this. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.